0: Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin.
1: All right, so I've got a couple questions for you. What are the longest plans you've made? that ended up working out. Uh, Kids, I would love it if one of you or many of you would come up and tell me after the service, what's the longest plan you made that ended up working out later? For me, it's probably having kids graduate and get married from the time Jerry and I knew that she was pregnant. I thought, wow, how awesome would that be if they were to trust in Jesus and Sort a family of their own. I imagine for some of our more senior saints, it's retirement perhaps that you'd work hard in one way for many years and then get to a place financially where you could work hard in a in another way for the rest of your years. Uh, let me flip the question. Same basic uh, premise, but a, a, another angle. What's the most frustrated you've ever been at well-laid plans getting fouled up? So think about that. don't don't think too hard if it's really bitter. but uh, And what caused them to get fouled up, actually. So maybe it was when a parent said no to something. Kids, you had just planned and planned for a solid hour uh, of what this afternoon was going to look like, how you were going to play, how much fun it was going to be, and then your parents nixed that. Perhaps it was a marriage that ended, or maybe it was... Your investments didn't pay out quite like you thought they might and retirement got pushed back a little bit. Whatever it was, what is the most disorienting disruption of your plans that you've ever experienced? I ask these questions because if you listen to Dana at all, you already know that this passage is about making plans. More specifically, it's about the right and wrong ways to make plans, or more specifically still, the right and wrong motives in making plans. So, again, with that, the main point of this passage and the main point of the sermon is that there is a critical difference. Here, here it is. If you're gonna tune out at any point in the sermon, now is not the time. Here it is. Main point, there's a critical difference between trusting in God's design for the world and trusting in the God who designed it. Alright, there's, there, there's the whole sermon. You think you're about to Yap on for another like 40 minutes, (laughs) but that's it. There you go. That's it. There's a critical difference between trusting in God's design for the world and trusting in the God who designed it. James's readers, at least some of them were confused about that. They were trusting in the former, the design rather than the designer. And James wrote this passage to rebuke them for that, explain the problem, and then call them to humbly repent by trusting in God instead of themselves. So, in the course of the sermon, we're going to look at two things in particular. One is why James's readers were trusting in God's design rather than God, and here's the answer because God made the world to work in fairly predictable ways. They had fallen into that rhythm and become arrogant in doing so. The second thing is we'll consider what it looks like not to do that. If that's the wrong way to go about plan making, What's the right way? Namely, focusing on the Lord's will and sovereign reign over the world, not our own or ourselves. So let's pray that God would help us in all of this. God, thank you once again for your word. Thank you that it is the complete and sufficient revelation of your will to your people or for your people. I pray that we would learn today to love it, to understand it a little bit more, so that we can love it a little bit more, so that we can live according to it more. I pray that for those, which is to say all of us, who should find a measure of conviction in this passage, that we would find it, that we would receive it as an act of your grace, that we would experience genuine repentance, a a longing to turn from, in in an actual turning from our busted plan making. And to a more godly version of that. And I pray that in all of that, it would be under the banner of the forgiveness that is already ours in Jesus and in the knowledge that this is a better path than whatever one we're on. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So real quick, quick guide how to listen to this. This is like week, I don't know how many, where James is rebuking his readers for something they're messing up. And so it can feel, you know this, it it can feel... It can feel heavy, but the the way we're committed to preaching at Grace mainly is where the tone and message of the text is the tone and message of the sermon. You've heard that before, I hope. If not, you've just heard it. Okay, so how do you listen to this then when week after week you're getting kicked in the shins, Okay, so f- first of all, listen, listen to it. This is God's word to us, and we need... Graciously to be kicked in the shin sometimes. God loves us, and he wants us to walk on the path of life, the path of fullness of life. And sometimes when we get off, we need to get some shin kicking to get back on it. So hear that. And, and where you need to repent, repent. But secondly, li- listen in light of the gospel. Don't listen with your works lenses on. That's not what I just said or works that ought to flow out of this. But put your gospel lenses on and remember that you're already acceptable to God in Jesus. And get this grace. This isn't just a description of what you should be doing, but you're not. Get this, get this. This is a description of what God is already doing in you in Christ. That's his promise to you. Not just that your sins are forgiven, but that he is working out righteousness in you by the very grace through which he saved you. That's awesome. So listen, listen that way. Okay, as you've certainly noticed, by God's design, there is a rhythm, a consistency to much of our lives. It just Things work the same way over and over, largely. The sun rises and sets at predictable times. Seasons, likewise, come and go in consistent patterns. Our bodies develop in the womb at a fairly uniform rates like surprisingly uniform rates. Gravity always pulls down with the same force. Elements maintain their properties and consistent conditions. sounds pretty smart of me to say. I added the consistent conditions. I remember that from like ninth grade. thought that was cool. That's all I got. I don't even really know what that means, but I know it's true on some level. Germs behave basically in the same manner over and over again. It is for these reasons, Grace, which I think you know, but I want to draw to your mind, that clocks work and calendars hold. It is for these reasons that we can measure babies in the womb and know with great precision how old they are. That's always, like, that's a different deal, but that's crazy. It's for these reasons that roller coasters and bathroom scales work every time. It is for these reasons that we can make plastic, And structural engineering is almost foolproof. And it is for these reasons that infections respond to treatments in predictable ways, ways we can anticipate. If God had not designed the world with this kind of consistency, plans of any sort would be irrational. Nothing would be predictable. And and incidentally, this is not in the manuscript, which usually ends funny, but I'm going to try it anyway. This is at the heart of why, of how parents, you exasperate your kids, is by parenting in a way that's not predictable. You're meant to follow God in this in many, many ways. All right, that was all right. I didn't screw that up too much. All right. Because God did design the world to work in fairly predictable ways, we can make plans and reasonably assume that they'll hold, which they often do. Okay, more than that even, get this before I kick you in the shins, more than that, living as God intends, intends often requires us to make plans according to this rhythm. You you with me? So God made the world in, to work in a certain way. It continues to work in that way. It's predictable. And so we can make plans, but not only can we, there are a number of ways in which God requires us to make plans. We we need to be planners In certain ways, you can't provide for your family, which God requires, without a good plan to do so. You can't maintain God-honoring friendships that are as purposeful and meaningful as God has made them to be without making certain plans. You can't get an entire family truly ready for worship. Now, you can throw them in a car and get them here, maybe, but you can't get a family, an entire family ready for worship in the spur of the moment. You need to plan to do this, usually that starts sometime on Saturday. You can't read through your Bible in a day, so you need to make a plan to take in all of God's Word as He requires. You can't be hospitable to all your neighbors at once unless you live way out in the country and you only have one neighbor or something like that, and so you need to make a plan to get them all over at different times. You can't train up your child in the way they should go, command of God, in a day, for sure, not a week, not a month, probably not even a decade. So you need to make a, a parenting plan. How are we going to obey God to train up our children, to enculturate them in the gospel? And you certainly can't make disciples of all nations on accident. There are lots of things that go into that, at the very least, figuring out how to buy a plane ticket. All right, so it is for reasons like these that James's readers, as well as you and I, Make all kinds of plans that they would have, and we do. Evidently, however, some of James's readers were making plans in ways that were not quite right. Therefore, James addressed those plan makers, those under his charge, the ones that were getting it wrong in verse 13, and he said this, Come now. You might say, listen up, wake up. Come now, you who say there's a group that are saying this, today or tomorrow we go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. For those of you saying that, listen to me, James says. Again, there's a way in which those even those kinds of plans, the kinds in verse thirteen, are right and necessary. That is, there are ways in which planning to travel to a particular place, to engage in commerce along a particular timeline, is honoring to God. You can and even should do that in certain ways. This isn't a prohibition against wanting to be wise in how you make money or traveling to do so for a certain length of time. It's, it's not any of those things. But there are also ways in which that might not honor God, and in this case, did not honor God. James wrote this section in large measure to help his readers know how to tell the difference between godly planning and ungodly planning. What, what what's a way or a manner in which you can make plans in the rhythm that God has given that is pleasing to him, and, and how do you not? And that's the rest of the sermon. First, how do you do it wrong? And then second, how do you do it right? So first, how do you do it wrong? And we see that in verses 14 and 16. In essence, some of James's readers were making plans wrongly in that they were doing so out of a trust in the rhythm that God had made rather than in God himself. They'd Recognize the rhythm like you and I do, and they tapped into it to make a profit for themselves, trusting in the rhythm, their own desires and purposes, rather than God himself. Those are two fundamentally different things, trusting in God's rhythm and trusting in God. In simplest terms, silly example, I think it's helpful. It's like the famous experiment performed by, and I looked this up, I didn't, I just remembered Pavlov, but the Russian, I would have said psychologist, he's a physiologist, I didn't know his first name, it's Ivan Pavlov. As you know, he found that his dogs could be trained to salivate at the ringing of a bell rather than the presentation of the food. Without realizing it, the dogs had come to trust, effectively trust in the bell instead of the food. Silly, right? Are you like that? Do your plans stem more from trusting in the rhythms that you figured out than in the things that God has made or in the God who made the rhythms? Here's another way. Same thing. It might sound different at first, but it's the same heart behind this. Another form of the same problem, and the two almost always go hand in hand in my experience. Another another version of the same problem is one I've mentioned many times before. Just like sometimes we trust in God's rhythm rather than God, we also have learned to delight in the things God can give rather than God is the giver of those things. And so this is the most convicting passage I've ever come across on this. Uh, when pastor is asked, if you could have heaven, I've asked this to you before, rub this be- uh, uh, I've asked this of you before, if you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you have ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you've ever seen, and all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ were not there? Believe it or not, it's the same type of question as the first with Pavlov. Are you like that? Have you come to treasure the things God can provide, more than the God who provides them. Both of those questions get at the heart of the matter that James is trying to communicate in the wrong planning of some of his readers. Is God God for you, or is something else God for you? Whether you are, whatever you are ultimately trusting in, how do you know? How do you know what your God really is? Whatever you are ultimately trusting in, maybe it's your savings account, or your health insurance, or your home, or your parents, or or whatever, Whatever you are ultimately trusting in, and likewise, whatever you treasure, delight in, desire the most, is your God. You might say, you might even believe it's something different, but those things are far more revealing than whatever you say or believe you believe. That's the heart of what James is getting at. That's the heart of wrong planning. In both of those ways, though they probably wouldn't have said it, and maybe didn't even know it, those whom James was addressing in verse 13 were living as functional deists. Remember that. Kids, if, if you don't know what a deist is, I'm going to tell you right now. They were living as functional deists, just as many of us can be tempted to do sometimes. What's a deist? Someone who believes in an impersonal God, and in a sense, a God who created and ordered the world, wound it up like a clock, and then left everything to function independently of him according to the laws and motions that he put in place. It's as if God established the rhythm in deism, and the rhythm just kept going even though God took off. They were acting as functional deists. They certainly believed in a God of some sort, but more of a a rhythm-making absent God. That's how they were functioning. The God of the Bible, of course, is not a deistic God. He is entirely personal and continually involved in every aspect of his creation, in your life and in mine, and in every tree, river, and atom, and molecule. The Bible tells us plainly and repeatedly, as we just saw, God made the world largely, largely predictable with a rhythm, and yet it is in him, that the rhythm continues. It is in him that we live and move and have our being. It's not a rhythm that just keeps echoing through eternity. It's a rhythm that he is continuing to make. It is him who holds all things together, Colossians tells us. And he, not some impersonal law of nature, even one that he created, continually upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1 tells us. The main problem with the planning of James's readers, the plan the plans that they had made, was not the planning itself or even the plans themselves, but that their their plans resulted from a demoting of God in their own minds to a second-class, deistic means to an end, God. So ask yourself that. Doing that, and if so, I'm gonna kick you in the shin right now. Rather, the word of God is kicking you in the shin right now. Let me say that again. They had, and the question is, have you, are there any ways in which you or I have demoted God to a second-class deistic means to an end God? And conversely, whenever you do that, you have to promote something to first-class, personal. And the end, God. And for them, it was themselves. (laughs) They had promoted themselves, their wisdom, their purposes, their pleasures above God, and their plans flowed out of that. Again, their main problem was that their plans had been formed from trusting in and treasuring God's design rather than God himself. And those things are the height of arrogance, James says. What's the most arrogant thing you can do? It's to believe you have the ability to demote God, to make him in your image and promote yourself as God, the height of arrogance. And James rebuked them sharply for it. Verse 16, you can see it. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Do you see this? Do you see this, Grace? To, the, to simply tap into the rhythm of God's creation in order to profit from it in worldly ways is arrogant and evil. I'll say that again probably the second most important thing I'll say today. To simply tap into the rhythm of God's creation in order to profit in worldly ways from it is arrogant and evil. This was no small thing, and so James chided his readers for it. Further still, the evil arrogance of making plans based on trust in God's design rather than trust in God himself, on top of that moral flaw, as great as it is, had two logical flaws as well. It was morally wrong and logically wrong, James says. What, what do I mean by that? What are the logical flaws? First, in spite of the general predictability of the world, we really don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will, will bring, which is probably an echo, which James does a lot of Proverbs. Proverbs 27 1. Do not boast. He, James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Grace, the sooner we wake up to the reality that every day, and some of you have experienced this, probably most of you on some level, the sooner we wake up to the reality that every day countless people wake up to a world dramatically different than the one that they had imagined the night before, the better. You can't make plans without realizing that. It's hard not to think of the entire world the day after the flood started. Just picture them. Ah, there's some clouds in the sky. This looks, We might need to wear our raincoats tomorrow, they were thinking. No big deal. Imagine the entire world the day after the flood started, watching everything and everyone they cared for being washed away. Or the whole world the day after Babel. Just, just the night, night before, they all were able to talk to each other and understand each other easily. Conversation flowed. They had big plans for this tower they were working on. The next day they couldn't understand a word anyone else was saying and they were being driven all over the face of the earth. Or Jonah running away from God. You know, just, just picture him. Oh, what a dummy. Just picture him, right? And he had plans as to what this was going to (laughs) mean. I mean, I don't know about your day, but three days in the belly of a fish is probably not what he imagined. You do not know what tomorrow will hold. And you think, ah, that was just Jonah. Well, (laughs) I mean, I don't know, maybe. Or the Apostle Paul, just picture him on the way to Damascus. Certain, he was right. Zealous, in his mind, zealous for God and the will of God. Only to meet Jesus. Jesus. Crazy. Or the disciples the day before they the day before Jesus called them to be his disciples. They're going about life, fishing and tax collecting and whatever, and everything was different the next day. A golf outreach a few years ago. We had great plans for how we were going to reach a number of people for Jesus. And I thought it might have been the second flood. I don't know if any of you were there, but it was the most torrential rain I've ever seen in my life, and no one heard the gospel that day, at least not through the means that we thought they would, or the latest Powerball winner, or all investment managers in late 2007, or the day before you found out you had cancer. Here's, here's one of the most more profound things I've heard recently. I was at a conference, and one of the speakers had had cancer years before, and, and it was a Q&A time, and they asked him, what, what in your life has changed most since you came through cancer? And he said something like this, this is a a loose paraphrase. He said, well, in the past, you get asked all the time, how how are you doing? And he he said, I used to answer well or good or I'm doing really well. And he says, right now, I now, or since then, I now answer, I honestly have no idea how I'm doing, but I feel good, (laughs) right? We could have cancer in us right now and not know it. We're in the hands of God. His point, as I'm sure you already know, is exactly what James was getting at. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. In fact, get this. If you're going to make plans that are honoring to God, which we'll get to in a second, you have to understand that we rarely even know much about what's going on right now. Not only do you not know what tomorrow holds for you, you barely know what right this moment holds for you. You don't know what's going on in your body or outside around us. So what some of James's readers had sinfully and pridefully forgotten, which so many of us today are prone to do as well, was to remember that God alone knows and governs what tomorrow will bring. Their plans were not made in light of or in submission to that reality. Therefore, they made wrong plans stemming from wrong hearts. And James, in love, the point of this, these few verses, was that he wanted to help them recognize this before it was too late. That was the first logical flaw. What was the second? Similar, but worse. They were not only wrongly living as if they knew what tomorrow would hold because of this rhythm that they had detected, but they were also living as if they knew there would be a tomorrow. (laughs) And not only do we not know what it will hold, we don't even know if we have tomorrow. None of us do. What is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes? We're a relatively small church, but even in our small church and the relatively short amount of time that I've been here, We've had our share of experiences with the mistiness of life and several family tragedies and entirely unforeseen deaths and unexpected ends to pregnancies and tragic accidents and people thought who in our midst thought they would have a tomorrow didn't. It's one thing to make plans. It's another thing to make plans as if life were not a mist or as if we are in charge of when we live or die. God made the world to work in predictable ways, certain predictable ways. Consequently, we can and in some ways must make plans in light of this divine rhythm. However, some of James's readers were acting as if they and the rhythm existed apart from the God who made them both and sustained them both. They had their own plans and purposes and made them without regard to the fact that they had no actual knowledge and certainly no certainty and certainly no authority over the events of the next day as the height of arrogance james says and it is evil so let us see in their failings let us see in their failings let us see them that we might not share in them and if we do which we all do on some level that we might quickly repent of them let the shin kick turn you to repentance so what kinds of things ask yourself what kinds of things are you making plans for have you forgotten that even the best laid plans are always in the hands of the Lord? Are you continually conscious of the awesome power of God constantly at work to maintain the rhythm? Or do you move to the rhythm unconscious of the one who is playing it? If, God, if by God's grace you're eager to heed the warnings of this passage and forsake the kind of evil and arrogance that causes us to live as functional deists, what does that mean? What do we do? Let's say you're hearing this and the Spirit's pricking your heart for your plans. What do you do? What constitutes, if that's, if that's ungodly planning, what constitutes godly planning? What does it look like to make plans stemming from trusting God rather than His design? That's where we're gonna finish up this morning. Having seen how to honor God in our planning, what does it look like to make, what does it look like to make plan Having seen how to dishonor God in our planning, what does it look like to make plans that do honor God? Here it is, ultimately. It means acknowledging the sovereign will of God over everything. In other words, making plans for the glory of God means acknowledging God as God, and especially over all of our plans. To that end, James simply said, instead, that is, instead of the arrogant things you've been saying about what your future holds, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. Grace, to honor God and our planning, we need to make our plans, James says, according to God's will. Every plan we make must be entirely surrendered to God if it is to honor him. Two keys to that. What does that look like? Two keys. Two things that we need to keep in mind if we're to do as he charges and live in the constant refrain if the Lord wills. First, first key, we must recognize that most of the Lord's will is hidden from us. Okay? Most of the Lord's will is hidden from us. While James' readers had become arrogant, believing they knew they, what they needed, all that they needed to plan out their years, humility recognizes that God alone knows what the future holds. God alone. And humility recognizes that God has not chosen to reveal the majority of it to us, of his will, to us until it happens. We are not responsible to know the hidden will of God when we make our plans, but living in light of it makes us much humbler in our planning. That's what Isaiah is getting at in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. If there's one thing, that's easy to see whenever we read the Bible. It's that the Bible is the story of God's continually promising to interrupt the plans of man according to his great purposes. (laughs) If there's one thing you'll see when you read the Bible, it's God's continuing to break into the plans of man to accomplish his much greater purposes. Therefore, to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that is to acknowledge that we understand far less than we think we do. And it is the plans of the Lord, ultimately, that will stand. Second key is in recognizing that all that is required of us, most of God's will is hidden from us, but all of his will that's required of us has been revealed to us in the Bible. If you want to make plans to the glory of God, then your plans, all of them will be made in light of the clear, revealed commands and promises of God. Are you with me, Grace? say yes, (laughs) Uh, and and we're about to land this plane. If you're with me, with the Spirit's help, you are already running your standing plans through your brain. All right? You're already, if, if you haven't started doing that, you haven't been with me yet, get with me now. If you've heard anything I've said, the plans that you have made, the standing plans that you have are starting to run through your brain. We need to not be, James says, hearers only, but doers. And in this case, doing what James says means capturing our plans. Get them in your head. Get at least one of your plans for this afternoon or this week or this month or this year in your head. Get at least one of them. If you're with me, you're already doing that, running your plans through your mind, your summer vacation, your school plans for the fall, your picnic plans for this afternoon, your marriage plans, your television plans, your sports plans, your financial plans. You get the idea. If you're with me, you're running them all through your mind, or at least some of them, checking them against the will of God. Have you surrendered them all to God? Are they your plans, whatever they are? Are they a specific attempt to obey one of God's commands? Or to meet one of your own desires? Are they all made in light of specific promises of God? Or trusting in the rhythm that you've detected in creation? Are they clearly aimed at the glory of God? Or to maximize your worldly comforts or pleasures? If not, James is talking to you as much as he is to his first readers. And so hear it again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is in your plans, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Let me press a little bit further still. We ought to surrender all of our plans to the Lord because he's the Lord. He's God, we're not. We should do what he says. He's king, we're not. We should obey him. It is that simple in one sense. We are obligated to obey his rule and he has commanded these things to us. But more than that grace, to say if the Lord wills is most honoring to God when it is our increasing delight rather than our dispassionate duty. In Psalm 40 verse eight, King David wrote, I delight in your will. Not just that I, I I muster up enough self-control to do it, but I delight in your will. Not just that, okay, I made some plans on my own. I guess I shouldn't have done that. I'll, I'll, not just that, but I delight in your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Is that that's the heart of your plan making? How do you honor God? What's the difference between making plans that honor God and plans that don't? Is that at the heart of your plan-making? Are you continually looking to surrender your plans to the will of the Lord ultimately? Because the will of the Lord is your greatest delight, more than anything this world has to offer. That is the heart of the difference between the kinds of plans James rebuked here and the kind that he was calling his readers to, the kind that truly honor God. So here's my conclusion it's critical for us to recognize that none of us have done this perfectly. None of us. None of us have lived in perfect surrender to the Lord's will, even as none of us have done, have delighted fully in it, except Jesus Christ alone. All of us have arrogantly made plans flowing from trust in the rhythm of God and out of treasuring the creation of God rather than God himself. That's at the heart of verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so, Grace, hear this. i got 30 seconds left. The good news of the Christian faith is not that those who keep the commands of God and make perfect plans can be in fellowship with God. The good news of the Christian faith is not that those who live entirely consistently with the saying, if the Lord wills, will be in heaven. The good news of the Christian faith, rather, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for every plan-making sin and every other sin that we've committed and to sanctify us completely. Look to him, therefore, right now. Look to him and know the forgiveness of sins and strength for obedience. Look to him right now, therefore, for fullness of life and to live in the plans that God has made for you that are greater than anything you could come up with, if you had a million lifetimes to do so, look to Jesus, be forgiven and freed and reconciled to God forever and get into the rhythm of his creation, his plans for you forever and ever.